Uh, good to be with all of you tonight. Um, one of the things that we talked about yesterday, yesterday night, uh, in my lesson was some of the things that I've been doing whenever I'm studying uh, with skeptics. And uh, yesterday we talked about how oftentimes skeptics in our society today may want to present themselves as being very fact-driven and objectively minded uh, in the kind of conclusions that they've reached and that Christians have emotional reasons for belief, but the skeptic has reached the pinnacle of, of rationalistic thinking and things like this. And we talked a little bit about how uh, one of the motives or the motivations for believing in in uh, a secular worldview oftentimes can be emotionally driven. That uh, I asked you guys to raise your hand yesterday. How many of you know somebody who was a Christian that became skeptic? And a bunch of you raised your hands. If you were to start having some conversations with some of those folks and you were going to ask them, well, what was your religious background like? Tell me about your religious experiences. My guess is that a lot of those people would say something about their frustrations with hypocritical people that they grew up with or something like that. And that sort of began their path towards skepticism. So they have an emotional reaction. And so what... I am trying to do whenever I study with skeptics is to try to show them that Christianity makes emotional sense, to try to remove the emotional barriers that they have. And as we discussed yesterday, uh, one of the ways that I try to help people see this is by talking about different universal human needs. Yesterday we talked about meaning, morality, and hope. We just take needs that everybody knows that uh, that they need fulfilled in some way. And then we just ask the question, what, how does the secular worldview, what resources do the secular, does the secular worldview have for giving you that need as opposed to the Christian worldview? What resources does the Christian worldview and Jesus have to give you that same thing that you know that you need? And then you just compare and weigh out which one makes better emotional sense with the way that you were designed. And so tonight we're going to be looking just at this need for a sense of identity. Uh, what is identity? Uh, there's a lot of different hats that a lot of you wear. Like I'm a preacher and I'm a father and I'm a husband and I'm a son and I'm a brother. And, I, and you have all these different hats that you wear. Your identity is whatever. This is one way you can think about it. Your identity is whatever is identical about you, no matter what hat you're wearing. What's the thing that's at the core true about you? Because you might act slightly different when you're playing the role of preacher, or you might act different when you're playing the role of father or sister or brother, whatever you are. And so what's the thing that at its core is true about you? What's your self-understanding? And so like we talked about yesterday, I want to begin by showing the secular approach to identity and then compare that to the Christian resources for this thing that we all know that we need. Now, uh, there's a couple different things to say about the secular approach. You could begin by talking about the traditional approach to identity, which works from the outside in. That's to say that the way that I understand who I am is I look outside of myself at what my society or my family or my tribe expects of me. And even if my heart doesn't jive with that, I learn to stuff those things and accept what everybody else is expecting of me. So uh, Carl Truman wrote this about this. Culture, at least historically, directs the individual outward 
It is in communal activities that individuals find their true selves. The true self in traditional cultures is therefore something that is given and learned and not something that the individual creates for himself. So imagine for a moment that you're living in the 1600s and daddy was a silversmith, but you really want to be an artist. What are you supposed to do? You may not be able to do all those things that you would like to do. If it's expected that your father was this or that or he was a farmer, the expectation would be that you go ahead and do that same thing. So that's that's the traditional approach to identity. Now, I just want to bring this one up to contrast what we live in right now. So does that make sense of with more traditional societies? Here's what the more modern approach is that you work from the inside out. And I don't mean inside out in a derogatory way. I'm just trying to explain how our culture is right now. So you start from the inside on what I think is true about me. And then I demand on the outside that everybody's okay with that. Carl Truman went on to say this. Psychological categories and an inward focus are the hallmarks of being a modern person. This is expressive individualism that each one of us finds our meaning by giving expression to our own thoughts and desires. Does that seem to capture pretty well that you begin with psychological terms and, and, and understanding who I am, however well I can do that. And then I try to remain true to those things. And we're going to have to have parades for the things that I believe in and the things that I do or whatever. That's sort of where our society is right now. By the way, have you noticed how much in our modern art this kind of idea is taught and propagated? So do you remember in the 2000 it, – it's 2013, uh, the movie Frozen, the song Let It Go switches in the song from a traditional approach to identity to a modern approach. Do so you remember the song? Don't let them in, don't let them see, be the good girl – you always have to be concealed, don't feel, don't let them know. What's Elsa struggling with in that song? That there's things that are true about me that I can't let anybody else know. And then the song like gets really beautiful and the hair changes and the dress changes and everything. And then she says, well, now they know, let it go, let it go. Can't hold it back anymore, let it go, let it go. Turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. What does that song mean? What does it mean to let it go? That there's things within me that have been repressed that I need to go ahead and be true to myself. Now, now, would there be some I'm not trying to defend either one of these approaches, by the way. But can you see that there's a sense in which both of these approaches would have some truth in them? That in the traditional approach, there, there's some degree that, you know, if, if if my family or my people are expecting certain things of me, you can understand where you'd want to try to fit in in some ways. Um, and there's also things that are individually true about people that are beautiful, that, that could be expressed in ways that could be very helpful. In fact, God even talks about how every Christian's got individual gifts. And you're not, you're not all gifted in the same way. Everybody's got individual talents and abilities that are supposed to be used. But if you start to detach God from these things, what, what's the problem specifically with this modern approach without God in the picture? I'd suggest that there's a couple of problems with this approach. Number one is that it's very unreliable. I mean, if somebody was to tell you, you be true to yourself and nothing else. One of my struggles with that is how do I know how to be true to myself? I don't even understand myself. Do we ever have conflicting desires? 
where we would like to be independent, but at the same time, we want to have deep relationships with people. Those can be conflicting desires that we have. Or somebody wants to be really successful in their career, but at the same time, they want to have a nice family. And can those things always coexist together? So when somebody says, you be true to yourself, my thought about it is, is I feel like I'm a walking civil war and I don't always know what I want at the deepest part of me. So how am I supposed to know how to do that? Maybe that's one problem with it. There's another problem with this, though, and that's that the praise of men will never be able to fulfill me in the ways that I know I need to be fulfilled. So if I'm starting from the inside and then wanting everybody to be okay with it and to to accept it. You remember in the book of Esther when um, Haman is exalted and... uh, he everybody's just bowing down before him except for one guy and when he goes home to his wife and his wife goes how was your day he can't say you know it was a pretty good day pretty much everybody respected me there was one guy that didn't but it's not a big deal because everybody just really you notice that all the people that bowed down to him don't matter it's the one person that didn't that frustrates him it's like you can have the praise of so many people But if you're depending on everybody accepting you and your worldview and the things that are true about you, there's still going to be something about it that's not going to work. That's the second problem. There's a third problem, too, with this is that there's a sense in which in our culture right now, this is an illusion anyways. So somebody says, be true to yourself and you go, "Okay, well, I'm a Christian. Can I be true to my Christian convictions without anybody judging it? It's illusory because, in a sense, our society wants us to be true to ourselves in the things that society says you can be true to yourself about. So those are some problems with that. So without God, the secular approach to trying to find identity is not very helpful. What is the biblical worldview on this? And there's more that we could say about all of that. But the biblical worldview, I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to spend the rest of our time in the book of Ephesians. And uh, what I'm about to show you is something that I show to people that are uh, new converts, especially. It's one of the first things that I show to somebody after they've become a Christian. And uh, I think these are things that not only show that the Christian worldview has more resources with regard to building identity... Uh, But it's also something that we need to be challenged with and ask ourselves, are we finding our identity in God more than anything else? Look at Ephesians chapter one, verse three. Paul says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, Paul begins this letter by telling these people to bless God. Uh, I heard this first from Andy, but the idea of blessing God there, it's the Greek word for speaking well of somebody. And the reason that you bless God and that you speak well of God in verse 3 is because he's blessed us. He's spoken good things about us uh, in Christ in the heavenly places. The first time in the Bible that God speaks is Genesis chapter 1. And in that text, how is God being pictured? In... The debates that we have is over, were they six literal days? What's the age of the earth? Things like that. To the original audience, what would Genesis 1, what would be one of the things that they would probably pick up from Genesis chapter 1? 
If you were a king in the ancient world and you said, give me grapes and let me lay on that couch thing and do the leafy branch thing and all that stuff. You could just say something and you could even say, build a big pyramid so that everybody remembers me and the words would make it happen. So in in Genesis chapter one, God is being pictured as the cosmic king. When he says something, it's like a king's edict. It's like a king's order. Things happen. And so his words are very powerful. This text here says that God has spoken good things about you. Now, do you suppose that if God's words could form the world, that God's words should be able to form us in a new way and they should be able to transform the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we react, everything should be different about us. Because if God's words are that powerful and he's spoken things to us, Then that ought to change us. Now, what are the things that he's spoken to us about or spoken about us? What I want to do is just survey Ephesians chapters one through three. And you can find, at least in this lesson, we're going to notice 12 different things that God has said about you. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on any one of them. But these are things that uh, God says you are, which I think is a lot better than any other approach to trying to understand who you are. The first thing that the book of Ephesians says that you are uh, are saints in chapter one, verse one. Uh, When I grew up in Minnesota, there is the city St. Paul. Uh, Your Bible might begin by saying the letter of St. Paul to the Ephesians. It's a word that is a highly exalted word in our society. the, The way that people conceive conceive of that word. We might even joke and say, I'm no saint and say, I'm not like a super duper Christian or something like that. But in Ephesians 1, 1, it says that all Christians are saints. All people that are in Christ have been set apart for God's purposes. So in Christ, you are a saint. Notice the next one in chapter one, verse four. In Christ, you are chosen. Have you ever seen this happen before where sometimes Christians will say all the things that it doesn't mean? It doesn't mean that and it doesn't mean this. Move on. Do you think a text like this where it says that you are you are chosen, whatever it means, is something that we should find some comfort in? We've been chosen for obedience. It, it requires certain things of us. But the fact that we are God's chosen people and what that would mean is expected of us. Uh, that's a special thing. I remember when I was in seventh grade, I wasn't the best math student. But I wasn't the worst either. And at the end of seventh grade, uh, the math class, the teacher called certain students up to her desk. And I was not one of the ones that was chosen. And I found out that she was inviting kids to be in the accelerated math class for the next year. And I was so I went up to her and I said, you don't think I can do it? And she said, well, I don't know if I chose you. Do you think you'd be interested? And I said, I'm not sure. And she's like, well. I think you could do it. I'm like, I don't want to. I just wanted to know that I'd be chosen. (laughs) Uh, In Christ, though, you're chosen. Notice the next one. In Christ, you are adopted. Uh, The concept of not having a father. And then uh, as soon as he adopts you, you've gone from rags to riches. Verses 11 through 14 in this text Talk about the inheritance that we've been given in God. But as soon as the paperwork was signed, as soon as that work was done and the father did those things that he needed to do to adopt you. 
your life has been dramatically changed forever. Have you ever thought about the word adoption? I don't know if this is the proper etymology of it. It's just the way that I like to remember it. But adoption. Ad option. Do you know what adoption is? It's an option that nobody's obligated to do to add to your family. It's an ad option. When God looked down on you, do you think he looked at you and thought, well, if I don't have this person on my team, there's no way that the kingdom's going to succeed. No, it was an option that he exercised to adopt you as one of his children so he could be your loving father. In Christ, you are adopted. You have belonging. Notice the next one. In chapter 1, verse 7, in Christ, you are redeemed. Uh, you are freed from slavery. Uh, one of my favorite pictures of redemption, you've got, you've got the Israelites being redeemed out of Egypt, that kind of picture. But in the book of Hosea, where uh, Hosea is told to marry this harlot. And when you look at Hosea chapter 1, it's hard to even tell. Like, it seems like the first kid is for sure Hosea's, but the second and third, it's a little bit more debatable the way that the text reads. So he's with this woman, and you're not even sure if this kid that you have is really your kid. Can you imagine that? And, and you're trying to figure out, how do I love this kid? But at the same time, it's hard for me to know if this is really my child. And then she, she goes out and she's cheating on him more and more. And then God te- tells him, I want you to buy her back. Uh, how, what is it that we've done with our sin? Every time we sin, it's cheating on God, this idea that we're not being loyal to him the way that we ought to be. But even though he has, we've done that, he's redeemed us. In Christ, you are redeemed. Notice the next one. In Christ, you are forgiven. Um, my understanding of the economy is that the more and more money that you print, the less and less that, that a dollar is worth. How many words does the English language have? It's a, it's, I think it's like over half a million now or something. I don't know what it is. So like with the proliferation of more and more words, does that mean that like in, certain English words lose some of their value? I don't know. There are certain words that I don't think will ever lose their value, though, forgiven. Think about all the things that you've ever said that as soon as you said those words, you knew that it was going to break the heart of the person that you were just talking to. All the things that you've done in secret that you're so ashamed that you don't want anybody to ever know. And Psalm 103 verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. It's done. It's over. He's promised to never use it against you again. Chapter 2 verse 4, you are loved. Have you ever questioned whether or not you were loved? And the text doesn't just say that you're loved. It says that you're greatly loved. When I first became a Christian, I had this misconception that there is no way that God would love me, like really love me, until I got to a certain point of maturity. Do you remember in Ephesians chapter 4, like starting around verse 17, when Paul starts talking about putting off the old man and putting on the new man uh, to be renewed into the image of Christ, that kind of imagery is used there. This means that the audience of the book of Ephesians was not totally mature, but at the same time, they were still greatly loved. In Christ, you are greatly loved. I'm going to come back to that one towards the end of the lesson, but notice the next one. In chapter 2, verse 5, you are alive, which implies that at one point you were dead. 
In chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in once you, in once you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Uh, one of my favorite pictures in the Bible of being made alive is that third vision in Ezekiel in chapter 37 with the valley of dry bones where uh, the bones are, are they're scattered all over the place. And Ezekiel is told by God, asked by God, son of man, can these bones live? If I'm Ezekiel and somebody asks me that question, I think that that's one of the dumbest questions anybody could ever ask me. You see a bunch of bones and somebody says, can those live again? You go, no, it doesn't even have a brain. There's no skin. There's no, there's no way those can live. But you remember what his answer was? Oh, Lord God, you know. Andy talked yesterday about the Gerasene demoniac. If you would have seen the Gerasene demoniac and somebody was to ask you, hey, can that man live again? You, nope, nope. Ezekiel's answer, Lord, you know. Uh in Christ, you are alive. Do you, do you remember before you were ever a Christian? How do you know, by the way, if you have a good memory? Do you have a good memory if you can recite different Bible verses and you know where all the passages in the Bible are? That's great if you can go ahead and do that. But biblically speaking, do you know what it means to have a good memory? Like in Ephesians chapter 2, he says in verse 12, remember... That you were at that time separated from Christ. Or in Ezekiel chapter 16, this girl that was thrown on the side of the road and God passes by her and speaks to her and says live. And then he comes back and he ends up marrying her. And then she starts whoring around with all of the idols in the land. All the people that walked by her and never gave her any attention. Now suddenly because she's beautiful, she's giving herself to all of those people that never wanted her to begin with. And it says in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 22, in all of your whoring, you did not remember the days of your youth. What does it mean biblically to have a good memory that you never forget where you've come from? Do you remember that you were dead and that it was only by what Jesus did, the son of the, the, the true son of man that came and spoke life giving words that brought you back to life? Notice the next one in Christ, you are saved. Uh, whenever I lived in San Diego, people, well, okay, let me say this first. The word saved is one of those words that I think in our society we have to help define for people. When I lived in San Diego, if there was ever a beached whale, what did you have to do for the beached whale? You had to save it. What does Dave Ramsey teach you how to do? Save money. What does it mean to save something? That it was going to be... It, under some kind of peril, that something really bad was going to happen to it, but it had to be rescued from some kind of peril. Peril, And I'll suggest that, functionally speaking, however you live, if you live um, with the misconception of salvation, it's going to make a big impact in your life. How, how do you know what you think your Savior is? Whatever you think the worst thing that could ever happen to you is will dictate what your Savior is. If I think the worst thing that could ever happen to me is that I'm really, really poor, then what's going to be my savior, my job and my money? If I think that the, the worst thing that could ever happen to me is that people would think that I'm stupid, my books and my education is going to be my savior. 
If the worst thing that could ever happen to me is that people would think I'm ugly or that I'm not fitted for some task, then you see how that works. Okay, subjectively speaking, could people have a misunderstanding of the worst thing that could ever happen to them? Objectively speaking, what's the worst thing that could ever happen to you? That you're separated from God forever. And there's a lot of people that don't believe that or don't understand that. And that's what Jesus came to save us from. In Christ, you are saved in the best way possible, in the way that matters the most. This next one, I think, is my favorite one. In chapter 2, verse 10, in Christ, you are God's workmanship. I don't know Greek, but I followed where the Greek word led to in the English language. The Greek word in verse 10 for workmanship, and I'm going to say the Greek word and try to think about what English word it reminds you of. The Greek word is poema. What does that remind you of? Poem, poetry. That's where the word comes from. That's where the English word poem comes from. It's from this Greek word. Do you know the other time that this word workmanship, poema, is used in the New Testament? It's in Romans chapter 1 verse 20, where it talks about all the things that God has made in creation. Those are the two times, it might be another time that it's used, two times at least that it's used in the New Testament. When you think about Genesis chapter 1 again, all the things that God made, how did he make it? By speaking it into existence. What is poetry? It's art put to words. It's somebody's craftsmanship. Have you ever seen uh, one of the elders at the church in Bowling Green that I'm moving to? He's starting a woodworking company and the kind of stuff that he does is just amazing. Have you ever been impressed with the kind of work that people do in those ways? You remember when that eclipse happened a couple of years ago? When I was in, in Southern California, like it was just terrible. There was nothing to see really. But there's other parts of the country where it was really cool. You like, you look at a sunset, you see, look at a sunrise, you go to the beach, you see all the beautiful mountains. Look at God's creation. It's God's poetry because he spoke it into existence. And that's amazing. Do you know what else is God's poema and God's workmanship? Is you and me. Because just like his words created this beautiful world that we live in, that is also marred at the same time, but there's beauty in it. His words are taking people that have been marred and he's making them beautiful again with the things that he's spoken, with these words that he's given to us. In Christ, you are God's workmanship. Notice the next one. In Christ, you are reconciled. Um. The idea that you've been refriended, I don't know what another word for this could be, but there was enmity with you and God and with you and other people. Have you ever thought about how much our society talks about uh, community and our need for other people? Whenever I study with the skeptics, one of the things that they bring up is that we are very jealous that Christians have a sense of community because we don't have that. Um, there's no like binding document. They, they, they can be loyal to Christopher Hitchens and another one can be loyal to Bertrand Russell or their, these other atheists that they like to read from that have differences with each other. Because of God's word, we have to be reconciled in the blood of Jesus and in the things that he's taught. We've got the resources to actually create reconciliation with people that would have enmity with each other. And we've got this connection with God. In Christ, you are reconciled. You have a community now. Notice this other one in chapter 2, verse 21. In Christ, you are God's holy temple. Have you ever thought about where God 
put the temple in the Old Testament? The location of the temple is interesting. Because if you wanted to travel from Egypt and go up to Babylon, where would you travel through? You'd travel through Israel. If you wanted to travel from Babylon down to Egypt, where did you have to travel through? You had to travel through the Holy Lands. Whenever a church is wanting to, to buy a new building somewhere, they always want it on some high traffic kind of area. God put Israel in a high traffic area. And what people would travel through, there was a court for the Gentiles where they could go to the temple and they could pray. And God would even be willing to answer those prayers for them. God was choosing to represent himself through this place. And in the new covenant, the temples are God's people. That God is choosing to represent himself through you, the royal king. As you get to meet people and interact with people in your school or workplace or whatever, God is choosing to represent himself through you. All right, so there's going to be one more thing that I want to look at in just a second. But just look at this list so so far. Does this seem like a little bit better than being so concerned about what my people or my tribe think about me, what society thinks about me? Doesn't this sound a lot better than what I think about me? Because I can't muster up this kind of strength and this kind of power to think anything like this of myself that will really move me in any way. We need affirmation from the outside. But if we look for it only in people, I understand Christians can encourage each other and that's great. But even that is not going to fulfill the deepest longings that we have. One of the things that I encourage new Christians to do in my Bible, I have all of these words highlighted, mine in green. And one of the things that's been so helpful for me since becoming a Christian, I didn't grow up with parents that really nurtured and and were concerned with the well-being of their kids in the way that a lot of Christian families would. This has been some of the most helpful stuff that I've ever paid attention to in the Bible. Whenever, Whenever you're struggling in those moments where you think that you're a loser or a failure, an idiot, would it be helpful to run these things like water through your heart? Would that help? There's one more thing in this text that God describes us as. Look at, I want to read Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 21. This is this prayer that finishes the three chapters. And based on what you see in the prayer, it sure is a good summation of the first three chapters. Look at this prayer in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Do you see what Paul's prayer is here? So Paul, uh, we know in chapter three, verse one, we know in chapter four, verse one, that he's a prisoner when he writes this letter, which As Andy said in the book of Philippians, that means that he's tied to a Roman guard. Can you imagine him literally getting on his knees and the the chains are clanking around? And the Roman guard looks down and Paul's speaking to this guy that's dictating the letter. And he goes, oh God, my prayer for these people is that the persecution would stop. That wasn't it. That might have been the NIV. I'm just kidding. I I was reading the NIV when I decided to become a Christian. Um, 
his prayer here is, God, I really, really hope that these people understand how much you love them. When was the last time you prayed that? God, help me understand how much you love me. When I first became a Christian, there were certain things. I was skeptical of the Bible, and, and there was a lot of questions that I had about a lot of things. And people would give good answers to some of those like science-y sort of questions and stuff like that. But once I accepted that there was a God that spoke everything into existence like the Bible teaches, it was not difficult for me to believe the story of Jonah happened. Whatever. If God made it all, he can do whatever he wants with it. It wasn't hard to believe the story of Noah. Whatever. If he made it, he can do whatever he wants with it. Do you know what has always been the hardest thing for me to believe in the Bible is that God loves me. That's the hardest stuff in the Bible to believe for me. Because I know my faults and I know my failures and I know the things that I've done. He says, I want you to, to uh, know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That, that you can't just know it intellectually. That there's an experience to this. That it has to sink deep and deep into your heart. Have you prayed for that? Um, why does he want them to understand how much God loves them? Did you notice that in the text? In verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that or so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. If I take a cup, an empty cup, and I fill it with the fullness of water, what's in the cup? Water. If God takes a human vessel and he fills that vessel with himself, what's in that vessel? He is. What's the imagery? That God wants you to understand his love. And when you understand his love, then you're going to act and react and be the kind of person that meditates the way that Jesus met. And, and you're going to love people the way that Jesus loved people. You're going to let him dwell within you. Uh, that, that imagery of, of dwelling. Um, if you move into a house, you get to rearrange the house however you want to. Like if, if a wall needs to be brought down you can bring the wall down you can make an addition if you want to if you let jesus dwell within you does he have the right to say i don't even know what that is but that's got to go and that's got to change and that's and the walls have to be different than what they are he's got the right to call the shots and that sounds really difficult to let him do that what's the motivation that'll allow us to do that is to know first of all how much he loves me and when i know that i'll be strengthened in verse 16 Uh, there are some parents that will never be pleased with their kids until their kids are perfect. And those kids grow up being crushed. Is that how the gospel works? That God could never think these things about you until you, you get to this point of maturity or you, you get to this age or you get to this or that, whatever it could be in your mind that you feel like you need to get to. And then when you get there, it's still not good enough. You ever played that game before? The way that the gospel works is that he says these things about you the moment that you are in Christ. And then he helps you live up to these things. Do you suppose that that's a more robust and satisfying way of understanding your identity? We all need affirmation from the outside. And we've got a God who loves us that has spoken powerful words that's created this world. And he'll speak powerful words that will recreate you. Uh, have you let these words of God be applied to you? Are these things that are true about you? And maybe maybe they have been true about you, but you've been seeking your identity in other places. Uh, if not, this is an opportunity to come back to God. I'm going to stop here.
and we're going to have a few-minute break, and then it'll be Andy's turn. Thanks for your good attention.